You've seen her fly, now watch her move to a brand new network. The CW has a new hero when Supergirl lands October 10th. It's the season two premiere of the show critics call Pure Blissful Fun. This season, the Man of Steel will finally be revealed. Supergirl's Melissa Benoist teams up with Tyler Hoechlin, the newest Superman in the DC Universe. It's a superhuman family reunion when these Kryptonian cousins join forces in the fight for justice. And if you're wondering if the next president will be a woman, we have your answer. Because Linda Carter, the original Wonder Woman, guest stars as Supergirl's commander-in-chief. Even though Supergirl has her hands full fighting evil full-time... Kara Danvers is facing changes as challenges of her own. She knows what it takes to be a hero, but Kara is trying to figure out how to fit in with the human race while taking on a new job, new friends, and a new love who's out of this world. An evil corporate empire will rise that bears the name of an age-old nemesis, Luthor. Supergirl and Superman come face-to-face with Lex Luthor's next of kin, Lillian and Lena. And as you might suspect, the Luther family shares a passion for power that can only be satisfied by a different kind of green. Kryptonite. Supergirl. All new episodes starting Monday, October 10th, now only on The CW. Today on Anatomy of a Movie, we talk about the peculiarities of Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Stay tuned. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And now, here's Popcorn Talk's Anatomy of a Movie. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Popcorn Talk Network on Anatomy of a Movie Show. Today we are dissecting Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, the Tim Burton adaptation from Ransom Riggs' book. Very good, Marissa. Excellently said. Um, thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Can't yes. wait to talk about it. And for the listeners, who are you? What up, guys? I'm Jeff Graham. Thanks so much for tuning in to Anatomy of a Movie today. Um, I just saw the movie, like literally an hour ago, so I'm excited <laughs> to talk about it. Um, if you guys want to catch me on other platforms, you can find me on AfterBuzz covering Atlanta on FX and The Good Place on NBC. So I'd love to see you there as well. There you go. What's your Twitter handle? Oh, my Twitter is Jeffrey C. Graham. There you go. And you can follow me on Twitter at Serafini TV. I am, of course, your host, Marissa Serafini. And uh, Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. It is a mouthful, but I thoroughly enjoy this film. What were your quick thoughts of this film? So, quick thoughts. I have read the book. I admittedly have read the book three or four years ago now. And I have read Hollow City. I have yet to read Library of Souls, which is the trilogy um, that Ransom Riggs based this whole mythology on. Um, For the most part, I thought the movie was really, really excellent. I thought the movie got a ton right. I thought that there was maybe 15 or 20 minutes that the movie just got so wrong. Um, But that's okay, because I think this movie could have been pretty bad. And I think the stuff they got right, they got so right. So I was very forgiving of the the third act, which I know we're going to talk about later, but... We'll definitely talk about it. I enjoyed it. Um, Admittedly, I read most of the book after I watched the movie. Mm -hmm. I read part of the book before and then due to scheduling and stuff, but I I did read the full book. And um, now, having seen the movie one and a half times and seeing and reading the book, like, I understand where you can think it went wrong. I see it more as where they took the creative liberals. (laughs) Great. I'm glad. I'll be interested... To hear you kind of... I'm glad you think that, because it'll be fun Mm. to sort of compare. Yeah. Unfortunately, like, I'm just a big Eva Green fan. Mm. She's amazing. She's great. And so I've seen just about everything she's been in. And, of course, I was going to see this, no matter what the story was going to be, just the fact that she's in it. And now knowing also that Tim Burton was Mm -hmm. directing it, it's like, you can't go wrong, honestly. Yeah, this was definitely material matched to director pretty perfectly. Even when I read the book, I thought... I if this were to be made into a movie, I have a feeling Tim Burton would really handle it masterfully. And 99% of the time he did. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was great. And um, quickly, I also want to agree with you that the performances were excellent. So I'm excited to talk about them. I think so, too. I mean, Eva was, was great and Judy Dench for the yes. short amount of time she was on screen for. Um, but, yeah, I, I really liked the different children and the different abilities that they had or peculiarities, yes. as they like to call them. But, you know, overall, I just enjoy the story because mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of fantasy. And I think it's it's not something we haven't seen before, but I still enjoyed their take and their different spin on it. That mm-hmm. It still made it seemingly individual yeah. and memorable in their own way. Absolutely. I did think it had a, a pretty fresh... And for a movie that could have felt pretty recycled, I thought it felt pretty fresh. So. Yeah. All right, so let's talk about a little bit about the development of this because we know the the trilogy book series based on written by Ransom Riggs, but it wasn't actually long after the release of the first book that um, 
Riggs sold the screen rights to 20th Century Fox mm -hmm. to already be adapted into a film. And uh, it took about five years. Um, what Riggs said, and he said the perspective was mostly the, the waiting and the writing of his second and third book and to see if, like, they can make a movie out of this. Yeah, I wasn't surprised that this movie got optioned, so, or this um, material, the novel got optioned so quickly because the book is so inherently visual. Mm -hmm. um, for those who don't know, the book was actually developed, I'm sure we'll get into it a little bit, but Ransom Riggs actually is a photograph collector, and so the book was developed around the photographs. So there was already such a visual component to the material it makes a lot of sense that a studio saw the potential of it for even a potential franchise. Yeah, and even Tim Burton um, mentioned in multiple interviews that he likes looking at photographs too and vintage photographs. And this book already got garnered his attention mm -hmm. just by you know, the concept of these vintage photos that are in the book that are automatically attracted him to just the story and the characters and then eventually naturally into the movie. Yeah. Which um, I, I really find interesting because you can definitely tell artistic directors and creative directors and whatnot, especially Tim Burton as the creative genius he is in and of himself, like how people get their inspirations to create their next film or next big project. And knowing that he kind of like goes to books as inspiration for potential film adaptations, I like that. Mm hmm. Yeah. Really nice. Uh, but yet the writing, we obviously had Ransom Riggs with the novel, but the screenplay was by Jane Gold Goldman. Um, so it was adapted by a female, which I liked. And I feel like in this film had really strong female perspectives. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. One of the reviewers early um, compared the book to X-Men First Class, which she actually wrote that script as well, or mm -hmm. at least I think contributed heavily to the story development of that movie. Um, so it's, yeah, I think there was a lot of cogs that were working to assemble the best team possible for the development of this film. Absolutely. And, uh, yes, I've, I've heard from a lot of people, they would compare this or make this a mix of Harry Potter and X-Men mm -hmm. together. And right. I, I can definitely see those comparisons. People always pull from previous things to understand what they're currently seeing. Um, yeah, I definitely see it. And we can talk about the similarities between that. People would think X-Men with the individual powers or peculiarities right. as they call them mm -hmm. um like the ability to float right have the control over air fire we've seen that with x-men mm -hmm. we've seen uh, there was one of the villains in the movie that had the ability of ice so yeah. he had the shape shifting ice. yes well and even you know um oh shoot what's the name of the character with bees hugh Hugh. Hugh's character almost has an element of Froggy from like some of the older X-Men movies. Is that right, Zach? I'm saying that right, aren't I? Our producer's a super fan of Marvel. Toad? So. Toad. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> I'm not as much of a super fan as Zach is, I who's producing our show. But yeah, Toad. Like, it's the same kind of kind of quirky animal. Yeah, I'm, I think in the way that X-Men First Class was kind of immersed in a um, 1940s World War II history um, and kind of had these... X-Men serving as metaphors for outsiders. This movie kind of had the same thing. Yeah. And I wouldn't even really categorize it to just X-Men first class because there are so many stories in comics or graphic novels mm -hmm. or comics or whatever you want to call them. Um, sorry, Zach, if I'm like totally getting that wrong. But there are other stories in canon to the X-Men and and other than just the movie. So it's not just X-Men first class. I think it's just the concept itself of having children with these individual um, powers and abilities right. being uh, homed and fostered in this house for protection. Mm. Um, so yeah. like that, that therein lies that concept of where people can get the similarities. But I liked it. Me too. Um, it didn't bother me because I, I do like those stories. And if it works for X-Men, it can work for this. Agreed. And it's uh, enough of a unique approach that it does feel pretty different yeah and what i liked about it because it was different and another element that made it um isolated and stand out was the fact that they had to live in a loop right for them to keep living their days out and um whereas did to, to keep the uh external things out to save them protect themselves it's interesting um for the most part until the last third of the movie which we'll talk about the movie was pretty loyal to the book which i was happy with it is funny though because i think it was easier for me to buy into all of the mythology and lore reading it than seeing it mm -hmm. i i didn't really question 
the kind of what ambiguities or risky plot decisions that Ransom Riggs makes in his original. Yeah. Whereas seeing it on screen, I um, had a couple moments where I was like, oh, this feels a little bit like maybe it's not totally working from a story perspective. Just the idea of the time loop, for some reason reading it, it was easier for me to kind of digest than seeing it a little bit, even though it was so cool. And like, so I love the element of how they showed us the time loop resetting. That was really, really cool. I'm sure we'll talk about it. But I kind of, the story for me, even excluding the third act, which was different in the movie, seemed to work a little better on the page than it did on the screen, I think, for me. I think so, too. Absolutely. And we could talk about the book differences and just the uh, the explanation of the loops, because this is where, where the book is better and stronger and mm-hmm. storytelling and um, understanding the exposition of everything. Because right. in the book, you can read what it looks like and imagine in your own imagination what it looks like when they're doing the actual reset. And I think it was so cool to see it visually because time is really the only thing we can see visually in films or movies. Right. Or that's the same thing. Uh, Films and television. Yeah. That's where um, I think they do so well in showing time. Because when you're living every day, you can't really see the the difference of a time. Right. But if you slow it down, speed it up, you can definitely visually see it. Yeah, and for the most part, I do think the movie really got the look of the... Like, I... from It's not uncommon for me to see a movie adaptation and think, oh, I pictured that differently or I pictured it this way, but pretty much everything, in my mind's eye, they recreated it on the screen, at least for me. Yeah, I definitely think it got the tone of what the book was. It was a little bit slow in the book to even slow to start, and we see... Jake Portman's life and how he had his relationship with his grandfather and what he was doing day in and day out. Right. He he seemingly was an ordinary kid. And then we know he's not. He's extraordinary. Yeah. Um, but it was that slow buildup, but I think the movie did well as um, to show that he was a fairly normal kind of kid thrown into this world. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed it. But yeah, since we're kind of talking about the book differences... We know that uh, there are peculiars and the explanation of hollow gas and the whites. Right. Whereas, uh, I don't, they explain the hollow gas really well in the book. And, yeah. And, and in the film, they explain it in a, well, but in a different way. Yeah. What did you think of the look of the hollow gas in the movie, first of all? They looked creepy. They did. I would not want, want one of those following <laughs> me or attacking me. I got me. a little bit of a Stranger Things feel. From oh, the hollow gas a little bit from the monster from that movie. Are they tall and spiked tongues? Oh yeah, you haven't stuff? watched it yet. I have not watched oh, it. Oh, it's so good. You when you watch it, you'll love it. Um yeah. <laughs> okay. It is a little similar, kinda of lanky, um, tall, and yeah, the tentacles. There's a lot of like tendrils are another thing that are okay. common in, um yeah, the the book differences I if I'm remembering correctly, because it has been a couple years for me, in the book it's really the souls of the peculiars that the hollow gas feed on, right? Yes. In the movie it was the eyes. It's the eyes. And I think that's it was kind of a smart switch on for the film because it's hard to tangibilize a a soul. Right. How to how do you corporealize a soul? Yeah, I guess Harry Potter yeah. did it with like mist kind of, but yeah, a little bit, or like dust, or... Um, I know what you mean, though, and it's very Tim Burton just to have it be organs. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like if Tim Burton has a lot of creative control in this situation, I'm sure he was just like, let's have him eat their eyes, because the visual... That's gross. <laughs> right, just like the visual potential of that being the mechanism to feed these hollow gas is so Tim Burton. Yeah. Um, I think the book does a really good explaining uh, the differences between the hollow gas and the whites. Yeah. Um, because I didn't really get it or understand it from the film i didn't either i had to ask you because you just read the book i was like okay so at first i was remembering it as the whites were the ones who were actually able to recognize the hollow gas because i'd kind of forgotten and you reminded me no, <laughs> no the whites don't. are the hollow gas who have turned back into humans yeah, and the, are now controlled like dr golan yeah or baron ba- baron dr golan yeah. um the whites are like the first stage of the hollow gas they're, they're the human form and the the movie didn't even ever use the word white, did it? Like, Not it didn't really, really no. explain. I kind of felt that that whole story arc was a little rushed and a little unclear. And I had read the book, so mm-hmm. um, potentially problematic, but that's okay. We can get there. Yeah. Um, I was trying to understand how they lost their eyesight, their vision, more so. Like, during the in the film, during the whole experimentation, that's where they lost their eyesight. Right. But in, uh, in the book... 
it, it was more so that's just because they don't have any souls themselves that they lose human form. Yeah. They lose the ability to see. Um, one thing I did remember that was different immediately was that Emma in the book is the fire manipulator. Yes. And Olive is the one, the kind of pixie girl who can float because she's lighter than air. Um, I will say, if I remember right, Emma in the book was pretty spunky and kind of um, rebellious, and I kind of missed that in the movie. Yeah, I would say spunky, definitely spontaneous, uh, yes. spontaneous yeah. in ways, and and she had a past relationship with Grandfather Abe. Right. When Abe was a teenager. So, and yeah, but did now knowing those powers were switched between these two characters, do you think that added or hindered to the storytelling of the film? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't think it necessarily took away from the story. I think I missed Emma's personality a little bit, not necessarily her powers. Um, but I'm not one of those people who gets so caught up in those minor differences in movies because as someone, I'd consider myself a writer and a lot of times you do need to make those choices because your job as a screenwriter isn't necessarily to completely retell the story, but to mm -hmm. capture the spirit of a story, but still present the best, most effective narrative on, as possible on the screen. So I thought that was a small enough choice that I wasn't necessarily bothered by it. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't too confused because it did come in handy with the, the whole shipwreck right. at the end in the film um, that helped add to the third and explain like, okay, her, her use of air abilities actually adds to, you know, the action that's going on. Um, I I liked the fact that they did switch it. They wrote the romantic relationships between the characters. Mm -hmm. Because in the book, it was Emma and and Abe. Right. Whereas in the film, it was more Abe and Miss Peregrine. Yeah, that so was interesting. The, the older. Right. Yeah. So And I kind of like that because... In the book, it might have felt a little bit... Incestuous. Incestuous, A yeah. little bit. Yeah, I know what you mean. I was a little weirded out by that one. But I kind of got the impression... See, I don't know if I read it the way you did, because I kind of got the impression that maybe Abe did have something with Emma. Did I see that wrong? In in the movie in the or movie. in the book? No, I mean... Because no, she was no, talking no. about how she was so sad about these goodbyes. When she said goodbye to A, but maybe it was just a friend thing. Yeah, I think it was more of a friend because we see different moments in the film where it's Miss Peregrine who was sending the letter to and Abe. And Abe was older. And Abe was older. And also just the phone call that Miss Peregrine got every day of right. Abe calling her, reminding her everything that he's okay, everything's okay. So, yeah. like, I saw the relationship between Abe and Miss Peregrine in the film yeah. more. Yeah, the thing I got confused about, and this is the these are the moments where I'm like, this was just a little more clear in the book. I kind of thought that Abe was actually aging in the time loop, but I guess he wouldn't be because that day is still resetting, so he would be the same age. Yeah, he would be. Yeah, okay. Yeah, you're right. I agree. And it, Yeah, it was a little weird in the book. I remember thinking, like, oh, Abe was with Emma? No. So I was like, that was a welcome change. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, another thing was, of course, the villains. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson playing Mr. Barron, who mm -hmm. in the book, Mr. Barron was just... A, he was a bus driver that appeared in Jake's life when he was a kid. Didn't really play a big role, but he apparently was the same person as Dr. Golan. And right. Dr. Golan, that particular name, was the big villain of the book. Yeah. Whereas they switched the names in yep. this film. So did you like Mr. Baron? Yes. I'm very excited added? to talk about... There's been a little bit of controversy surrounding that casting decision, and mm -hmm. we were discussing a little bit before you we went on air, but I thought Samuel L. Jackson knocked it out of the park. I thought he was great. It was fun to see him in kind of a different... I know he plays kind of the big energy, rambunctious roles a lot, but it was cool to see him play something so distinctly otherworldly in fantasy. I liked it. I liked he was in fantasy. Um, he's always fun to watch, no matter yeah, what great. role he plays in. There were, were some moments I felt like, okay, now he's just Samuel L. Jackson. See, the I and actually... It kind of took me out of the film, because I know that's what he's capable of, just yeah. as his personality. And I'm like, See, that's not his character, that's just him. The few moments that I was taken out of it, I actually thought were problems in the dialogue. And... For the most part, as we said, it was, for me, the third act of this movie that really fell apart. But when he kept criticizing Jacob's ability to be accurate <laughs> with the gun, I was like, you know, I think even Daniel Day-Lewis would have trouble delivering these lines. Because I just mm -hmm. felt like 
everything about the third act of this movie kind of sagged for me, including just the specificity of the di- even the dialogue. I was like, oh, that's just. I don't know. I feel like they might have rushed this draft and rushed it into production because I feel like this could be better. Yeah, I think there were some lines for Baron that I'm like, okay, this feels like very ad-libbed. Yeah. Um, like, uh, eventually your breath is going to run out. Right. And you also need a mint. And I know. Like, or like mm. the moment when he was like, you share a peculiarity with your grandpa, the ability to be annoying. Yeah. I was just like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah, so there were a few lines that I'm like, okay, is this Samuel L. Jackson or is this Baron? Right. Um, and I, I I, would blame that on direction and writing more than I would on his performance because I I don't know. But I, I hear you. It, it did take me out of it. I think we agree on that. Yeah, it did. Um, but overall, I still enjoy Samuel L. Jackson. Oh, for and sure. I think he added as a, a fairly scary villain. Yeah, oh, yeah. Would, I mean, he, he was a good adversary. He was game, which I really liked. And we're going to oh, get totally. into the performances, but everyone in this movie was game. They really bought into Tim Burton's world and his vision. And with whenever you're under Tim Burton, I'm sure as an actor, you just have to trust because you're asked to do some pretty crazy things. Mm-hmm. And 99.9% of the time, it worked here, and it was great. Yeah, I loved it. Um, let's talk about Eva Green. Yes. Miss Peregrine herself. Um, I love Eva Green. I've covered... Movies here on Anatomy that had Eva Green in it. I covered Penny Dreadful on her sister network and AfterBuzz TV, where she's all over it. I think she's so great. She just embodied this character so much. Yeah. And seeing her in all these different types of genres and her acting ability, this is like so spot on for her and what she can accomplish in mm-hmm. a role. And I, I just like she's just gorgeous too. And I think she really embodied what i was reading with alma peregrine like Mm -hmm. someone who can be strict but also compassionate at the same time yeah absolutely i thought she was great um this kind of nanny role is very traditional in like these kind of teen even tim burtony movies Mm -hmm. and it's such an important role to cast because you need someone who's warm and cold at the same time kind of thing or chilly and stern but also yeah, bursting with empathy and compassion, kind of per, like Professor McGonagall, or there's Nanny yeah, McPhee. There's so exactly. many examples of this kind of badass, stern, caretaking woman. Mary Poppins. Mary, even Mary Poppins, of course. She's the iconic. Tim Burton always said this is the scary version of Mary Poppins. Yeah. Oh, I love it. And um, she was excellent, I thought. I think she's great. When you, you were reading the book, did you envision Eva Green? No, not at all, actually. Character? I pictured someone older, someone more like a Professor McGonagall. Okay. Um, but that, that's not bad. Again, this was a choice that even... This is one of the few choices that didn't match my reading. But she made very distinct, bold choices. And for that reason, I thought it was a great performance and really worked. Yeah. Um, I, I loved it. And we've been reading the book. Uh, Peregrine, Miss Peregrine, is described not, not really as an older person, but someone who walks with a limp. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you can kind of associate that with maybe like the age. older yeah. age. Um, but... I, I don't think age was an issue no. in this film. I, I think she really uh, grasped this character, and she's fantastic. And Eva Green herself says, like, you can't say no to Master Tim. Right. And like and for that, I like it. And she's worked with uh, Tim Burton on Dark Shadows, and they're saying Eva Green is the new muse. Oh, interesting. Helena mm. Bonham Carter, what's she going to say? Yeah, watch out, Helena Bonham Carter. I think they're lovers, Tim Burton and Helena Bonham Carter. So uh, Maybe. Maybe, who knows? Maybe. I'm, we we're not in the UK, we're in, we're in Hollywood. <laughs> um, yeah, but you know, I, I really enjoyed it, and she, she was fantastic. Yeah. I was really sad that we got so much of her character, and I liked, and then she went away for like the length of a Bible right. in this yeah. film. Which, that happens in the book, too, if I remember right. We do kind of lose her. Is it just at just the end, Just like, though? a chapter. I think I'm combining Hollow City. In Hollow City, she's down for the count for, like, the first third. Okay. So, well, they have her, but she's in, stuck in bird form. Yeah, and that's what happens in the first book, too, that she's stuck in bird form, and she does get abducted, but they have to go after her, and they actually get her rather quickly before all the other inbreeds. Yeah. So, and, like, so she was... The character, Miss Peregrine, was probably gone for maybe one chapter. Yeah, but she was there even in the whole uh, third act. Oh, she was. And the whole attacking and whatnot. So. Yeah. It was a bummer because that performance was so magnetic that we kind of lost yeah, her at I the end. I was like, but... I just kind of want to see Eva Green. Yeah. Um, but uh, like, uh, it kind of helped that she did go away to make the kids stand on their own mm-hmm. um, and fight for themselves. I, I liked it. And uh, 
Uh, one other funny thing about Eva Green is like the the irony that her character can turn into a bird, but she herself is actually afraid of heights. Oh, really? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, and Tim Burton gave apparently gave her a hard time um, while filming uh, during that. So <laughs> interesting. I Tidbit. As a Butterfield, who plays Jake, uh, what did you think of his portrayal of Jake? Was it everything that you were thinking when you read the book? Yeah, I thought it was good. Um, a character like this can be kind of tricky because you're sort of the Alice to the Wonderland, you know, where mm-hmm. you're the straight man surrounded by all the chaos, so you've kind of got to anchor the movie. So I thought at times he was maybe a little overshadowed by the excitement of his co-stars, but that doesn't necessarily owe to his performance. I thought his performance was good, and... Truth be told, he was what I pictured when I would read Jacob Portman. So, yeah, yeah. I, I was happy overall. Um, I definitely, uh, like, I've seen As a Battlefield in a lot of other movies and a television show, Merlin, if you ever watched that, it's a great show. Um, so, he visually, he definitely fills out the character of mm-hmm. that teenager who you wouldn't, not, not not to say this in a mean way, but, like, you wouldn't really think twice about, like, right. that, that he's normal not, kind um, of He's not Taylor Lautner or whatever. No, yeah. No. Um, but like, I like the fact that he himself realized he was normal, but he does have a mission. He does have a peculiar peculiarity and, um, he realized that he is important and essential to those children and the home. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed it and he, how Aza Butterfield got involved in this, uh, he read the script and the book around the same time. He actually read the script first, and then he read the book. And then he had sit down with Tim Burton, and both of them like just collaborated their ideas. And he went through a few of the you know typical auditions that one would have to do. And then he finally did a chemistry test with Ella Parnell, who mm-hmm. plays Emma. And yeah, he got it. Yeah, I uh, I think that's common for sometimes for directors to just meet with the cast before they even start auditioning. I know um, mm-hmm. Linklater does that. He did that with Eller Coltrane for Boyhood. Uh, just yeah. kind of sat down with them and then was like, okay, yeah, I think you might be right for the part. So Yeah, and I think it's good to have that moment with like re- learning about the people who you, you potentially could be working with for six months. Right. And you got to know that if you're on the same page from the start, right. you're probably going to be on the same page at the end. Yeah. And um, I really enjoyed it. So let's talk about Ella Purnell, who plays Emma. Um, she's been in Maleficent, Kick-Ass 2, one of my ultimate favorite movies, Never Let Me Go. People need to go see that right now. Um, yeah, and she also read the script and book back in when this book came out. Yeah. So. Yeah, I thought Did she was like great. Her? I think my slight disappointment with Emma's character was that it was so different from the book. Um, but that doesn't owe to her performance. Her performance was great, and she did the job. Um and she did have a bit of an edge. I thought she had the edge. Not quite maybe the edge that Emma had in the book, but she wasn't afraid to kind of push back. Kind of gave me a little bit of a young Emma Watson. I kind of saw a little bit of Hermione, okay. the intelligent, resourceful. Um, and encouraging. I thought, encouraging. In the moments when needed. Yeah, kind of kind of classy, kind of classy performance. And yeah, I thought she did the job. I thought she was good. Um, I liked her. I think she was obviously the... Um, you can definitely tell those two were going to be, like, the the couple in the movie, which I'm, like, I'm totally fine with. Mm-hmm. I was trying to understand her character, knowing that she had the ability to, um, you know, control air. Um, but I liked how they added the fact that she also looked after Abe's possessions and made her more important for the exposition and it's like, oh, these are, this is the map that was entrusted to me so you guys can help and go find the, these hollow gas. Right. So, um, yeah. yeah, she she did serve a purpose. I enjoyed it. Uh, but, you know, we had a little bit of Lauren McCrosty, who plays mm-hmm. Olive. I've never really seen her no. in anything. She was good, though. She was. Uh, there, I didn't understand her relationship with her and Enoch. Oh, I kind of didn't either. I sort of felt like, in general, everything could have been fleshed out 5% more. Like, there was a big ensemble, and I thought at times, even though Tim Burton did a good job of making them vivid through his direction, the little time we got with them, I was a little bit confused. I was like, are Enoch and Olive... Because, like, I think Enoch seemed jealous of Emma, I thought at first, because he was Mm -hmm. threatened by Jacob. But then it seemed like Olive and Enoch had sexual tension, too. Yeah, I didn't understand if they were 
friends because Enoch's personality was so not welcoming right. and unlikable. And I'm like, how is Olive with, like, like this guy or potentially with this guy? And I didn't really see the relationship. I didn't buy into it. Yeah. And then even at the end when they're, you know, fighting all the holocaust and there was that moment where Olive might have died because right. she got frozen. And it, it kind of just stopped the movie for a second because Enoch had that moment like, oh, I did care for you. Right. It got, I don't want to say cheesy, but... A little sappy. Yeah, very sappy. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't understand the relationship because I didn't buy it from the beginning. Yeah, I agree. I found it to be a little problematic, and that's okay. I mean... Forced. I, a little forced, yeah. Forced. Yeah. Well, um, whatever. We talked a little bit but about Samuel L. Jackson, but I was surprised. Uh, I was surprised that he was in this film. I yeah. didn't expect it. Yeah, and I actually thought he was really, really good. I think... Both of us have identified a couple moments that we sort of took issue with. Um, Mm -hmm. But again, like, I kind of chalk that up to a little bit of the writing, unfortunately. And I think with the material he was given, he did a really, really good job. I thought he was scary, but I thought he was kind of playful and a little sinister in the way that you would want a Tim Burton villain to be, especially in a children's movie. And... um, I think, yeah, like, this could have been such a train wreck, this this villain. Could have been. And I think he did a pretty good job. I thought he did, honestly, a great job with this character. Yeah. I wasn't too, too afraid of him mm-hmm. because there were vis- visible elements that, uh, obviously, this is kind of a kid's film. Right. And a lot of teen, the young adults are going to watch this, so you can't over make him completely scary. So, like, his white hair in contrast with him... Um, definitely showed that playful yeah. kind of quirky side that yes. you can't take too seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, but I did enjoy him. Yeah. Also, I, I enjoyed Alison Janney. Yeah, yeah, she's back. This film. I know. I was. I just saw Girl on the Train, which she features yeah. in in a similar role. It is funny. She's in everything. Like I know we talk about the sixth degree. Woman. She's work. I love Alison Janney first of all, and like mm-hmm. I just she always shows up as these amazing scene stealing bit parts. And I for like the other day I rewatched The Way Way Back. Have you seen that? I have. She shows up in that movie. I just saw Tending to Hate About You again. She's in that movie. She's the uh, principal. Yeah. People she, forget. She is. And that's what happens is you're watching a movie and you're like, I forgot Alison Janney's in that. I really she's want in so many things. This this you know the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon game. Mm-hmm. I really want to do that with Alison Janney because I really think she might win. I could probably do that. Uh, yeah, and she's she, been in so she, much. Yeah, and she always plays like the fun mom. She's fun. She's yeah. in the show mom, yeah. and then uh, she was also in um, uh, the Duff. She plays the fun mom. Oh, I didn't in see that it. Film. Oh, What? But like American Beauty, it. I just rewatched that, and she's in that. Oh, she's. Yeah. Um, I've seen that movie. I'm trying to remember. She's the the kind of really solitary mom. Okay. And like Ricky's mom, Ricky Fitz's mom. And she's just fun to watch. Um, I would love to meet her in person. But the interesting thing that I've found that because in the book, this is again another difference in the book. Doctor Golan is a man, mm-hmm. and in the in the film, they made it a woman. Yeah, but if you get Alison Janney, you put her in your movie however you can. Yeah, and I think that adds to the twist yeah. at the, in the reveal at the end because you wouldn't expect it to be a woman. Most likely, you wouldn't expect it right. to be a woman. I thought it worked. Yeah, I was yeah. I was cool. The cool thing that I found out that Zoe Deschanel, Miranda Cosgrove, and other people were can also considered for this role. Miranda Cosgrove. Yeah, and they're like fairly younger Young. than I wouldn't believe them. Uh, like maybe I could believe Zoe Deschanel, but as a doctor, I know doctor. I think I feel like you need someone who's a bit older, more experienced. I agree to make it a. I feel like I would have been like, "Are you sure you're not just gonna like play guitar in Jack Black's band from Miranda Cosgrove?" Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's just hard. It's hard when you see a child actress grow up to like move past for right, me, and I know that's there. bad, but I get it. Yeah, I uh, love Judy Dench in this. The film. Dame. Dame, Dame Judy, Judy Dench showed up. Uh, playing Miss Havisett. I liked her. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, she had an untimely demise. Yeah. Which is, I was like, oh, you had Judy Dench, and yeah. then you killed her. Yeah. They might, it, it probably worked. I wonder if she would have committed to a whole six-month production schedule. Sometimes oh, you think God. with these roles, it's almost better because you're like, we can bring her in for a week and get all the scenes we need and then mm-hmm. send her on her way. It was kind of the same with Allison Janney, too. Yeah. So as much as it was sad to see her go, it probably worked for in that sense yeah and the character miss Havisett isn't that big in the book other right. than the fact that we know miss peregrine when she was a child 
she stayed at Miss Avocet's home. So right. Miss Avocet was like someone who's personally close to Miss Peregrine. Mm-hmm. Hence the reason why she went back to Miss Peregrine's home to seek shelter. Yeah. Um, I like that. So it, ju- it was just like a little backstory to Miss Peregrine. And it was good. All the inbreeds and that, the fact that they are a family and they look out for each other. I liked it. And this is uh, Judy Dench's first collaboration with Tim Burton. Is it really? Yeah. It surprises me. Yeah. She's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about the production of this film. Um, which I think Tim Burton did so well. But the, yeah, the DPs were uh, Bruno Del Bonel, and the production designer was Gavin Bouquet. But I loved how this film looked. Me too. It was colorful when it needed to be, and it was dark and dreary and saturated when it needed to be. Yeah, Wales was so gloomy in the best way. It was, was. kind of beautiful. Um, Tim Burton can get a little... This was perfect for him. Sometimes if he's directing kind of a serious movie, it can be a little bit like, whoa, like, why is there, why are there pink flowers? Or that would make sense. But I think (laughs) pink flowers would make sense. Sure. But like in this case, it was perfect because anytime he made these kind of over the top quirky decisions, it's so fit with the production design, even the original source material. This was a beautiful movie. It was beautiful. And uh, I love the different locations that they actually um, chose to film at because... Tim Burton, he liked a lot of practicality. Mm-hmm. Um, he liked the real sets, um, just like the home, the Miss Peculiar's home that they saw. So if you guys are listening in, on iTunes and, and in audio form, you should definitely check out the video because we're going to show some photos. And uh, it definitely um, adds to the discussion, and you guys can follow along with us and download the rundown and pictures um, in the link below. Uh, so the actual house where they filmed was called the Tornhof Castle in Brasschat, north of Antwerp, which is, is located in Belgium. But Tim Burton wanted a place that looked like a house, not a huge stately home or mm-hmm. an institute. And he said the architecture was right, the pond around it, the garden, everything. So there's a few photos you can just skim through. It's pretty perfect yeah. they, they looked at a bunch of other different houses too there was one that was um kind of had the feel but unfortunately it was kind of it was breaking down and it just wasn't safe mm. to just film in it for production standpoint and so the, there was another option too i thought it was great it was just what i pictured yeah so you had the garden and the landscapes they actually had um the the big bushes there that were trimmed into animal forms. Those, oh, were, wow. those were actually real. And um, the cool thing about this particular home is that when they found the property, no one was living there, and it was actually up to be auctioned off. Wow. And the studio was thinking of buying it just for the, the film, but many of the locals in the area actually just wanted, um, was interested in the villa, so they didn't buy it. They just, you know, um, used it for the filming. But I, I thought it was pretty cool. And, uh yeah. And the, the the castle itself has uh, architecture, that slightly run-down look. In this particular photo, you can see Tim Burton and the children actually playing. So, yeah, that's the actual land. Wow. Um, that's not CGI. That's the land in the area. And the gar- There's a whole garden shot as well. Um, pretty cool. And, this, and the interior design, there's no pictures for the interiors, but the furniture and all the rooms of the house are pretty... He says... 90% of the furnishings you see in the house is real. I love that Tim Burton still believes in the magic and the power of practical effects and staging yeah. because you can still obviously create the look of a fantastical world by using sets and using locations. And he just did such a good job with the look of this movie, I thought. Absolutely. Um, the, there is a room um, that the house itself had the observatory, that garden area, mm. and also the dining room, which we see. When, um, so, yeah, that was in the actual house as well. Pretty cool. The whole town of Karanam, uh in the film, they had to change the, the, the actual town that they were working in into Karenham. And the team decided to add a few buildings and a graveyard to the actual town because... Was it shot in Antwerp? um, This is Carnham. I believe Carnham is actually the name of... Oh, they actually did shoot in Carnham, Wales. Yeah. Okay. Um, And it it was really neat because if you actually see the photos, there's less buildings there in real life than there were in the film. (laughs) So they actually built 
the um, external facades of buildings just to see make it seem like more of a downtown area where there's a post office. There's um, if you look over to the next photo, um, there's yeah there's a post office and there's a graveyard that they added to it, and they even added a a pub. To to show that like the um, the locals are actually out and about. It was too area. desolate. They needed to actually. They I needed to add more. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> um, which was really neat. I liked it. Um, and the whole Blackpool scene, um, was not in the book. Yeah, I could have done without this, but that's really. All right. Yeah, I know we're gonna talk about it more, but I was just like the movie and the book. I mean, the book has a sense of quirky believability and fantasy grounded in reality. And Blackpool, it was cool to go to Blackpool. I have some um, British friends. I used to work with a lot of British people. And ah, so, like, okay. I was pretty familiar with the culture of Blackpool, and I had a, lot, a couple friends from Blackpool, actually. Um, so it was fun to see Blackpool on screen. But, like, what? Like, I was just so upset when, like, why are we, like, throwing cotton candy at the hollow ghasts? And, like, I don't know, like, Enoch animating the skeletons. Like, it just felt like it was, like... Rain it in a little bit. I was like, why aren't mm-hmm. the kids fighting them? Like, I, would, I just felt like I was watching a CGI f- battle for five minutes. I was like, I'm watching CGI skeletons battle cotton candy covered CGI hollow gas. It's on a pier in the middle of the UK. Like, this doesn't feel like it captures the essence of what I had read. Okay. Yeah, I believe it. And this is where it very deviates from the book. Very. Um, a, a great a great deal. Yeah. But I was, you know, okay with it. Yeah. Because it was in a fun way of how they got rid of these hollow gas and not in the dark way that it is in the book. See, I guess that's what bummed me out, too, is I was like, this is such a... Um, it's There's an element of tragedy to the book. I mean, like, it's framed by World War Two. I kind of sometimes get the sense that there's almost a Holocaust allegory element because it's these outsiders who are persecuted for the wrong reasons, having to hide from vicious monsters. And when you immerse it in the setting of World War II, you do kind of get these allegorical feelings that it might be tied to a Holocaust narrative. And I love that. I love that the book doesn't shy away from the horrors of war and persecution. It kind of embraces it. Yeah. And so I was disappointed with like this sense of like silly fun. Like I, I know it's a, a children's movie, but it just did not feel tonally aligned with what i had read or even seen for the hour and a half preceding it yeah um just that's just me though no i believe that and that's a very fair statement um i did like it because it was fun and just showed the kids like standing up for themselves because they they literally have to fend for themselves because they don't have adults around them to protect them it's them and i think it was just it was an innovative way for them to see the hollow gas because that was the the whole. Right. That's how hollow gas were so scary because they couldn't see them. Right. And the fact that you could delineate them with cotton candy, um, I think, just added to it. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, it was a way to handle the choices they made. <laughs> yeah, understandable. But the cool thing about the Blackpool area is that um, yes, they filmed on the pier with you know the different angles and the tower, but there was no pier. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was actually no pier. And um, and there are shots, and you can see in this photo, it's just the tower. But the pier that goes out into the water, they actually had a CGI that in. But there is a pier in real life, right? Or no? They Well, they filmed. Uh, I believe they created their own pier. I'm film. sure from a logistics standpoint of shooting, it's mm-hmm. very. it would be very hard to shoot. A very small soundstage. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I think it was really... Um, that that's cool. I never thought of that, you know, while watching the film. I because I don't really know the Blackpool area, so right. I was like, oh yeah, there's a pier there. I My totally British friends kind of describe it as like sort of like the Vegas of the UK, but or yeah. maybe more like Atlantic City. It's kind of like Atlantic City. Okay. Yeah, I get it. Um, yeah, and the cool thing about the the whole underwater tank with uh, Emma and Jake when they're swimming down to the the ship. That, that was actually filmed at the Pinewood Studios water tank. Mm. And the cool thing about that is that um, it was all CG, obviously. But when they were filming it, all the walls were painted green. Oh, wow. And it was obviously filled with water. And 
Aza and Ella actually did their own swimming, their wow. own stunts. And Ella Purnell, she could not swim before this movie. Wow. So it was very scary. And uh, Aza Butterfield has um, very bad vision. Interesting. And so they're both swimming with their eyes open. So Ella can't swim, and Aza can't see. And the, all the walls are painted green, so um, this is kind of what the tank looks like. Oh, wow. But imagine all the walls green. Well, this worked beautifully. I thought it was shot well. I thought it looked right. And mm-hmm. I thought the kids performed it well. So, yeah. As I said, it was definitely challenging for him because uh, when you're in water so often and you're surrounded by green, there's no depth of field. Oh, yeah. So he's, he didn't know. He could, like, make out, um, like, where Ella was while they were filming, but he couldn't really see anything else. So he said it was quite challenging for him. I would think so. Which I think was cool. But also... Other than just visually, the locations of it were pretty cool. The costuming of this film was pretty on point. Winning. Colleen Atwood. I mean, she's a winner. Yeah. She's won. Uh, this is her 11th time working with Tim Burton, so they have a really good re- relationship. She's known for Edward Scissorhands, Winnie Todd. I mean, so many movies. But yeah, she's, it is a little she's bit lucky. Oscars. Oh, yeah. You do get a little lucky, though, if you become, if you're a costumer. And you become Tim Burton's disciple. Mm-hmm. You know that every project is going to be... And granted, you have to be so talented. But there, it's sort of like you hit the, the jackpot. If it's like, oh, Tim Burton's like, oh, in this movie, we're going to be in the middle of Wales. We're going to have these... It's just... She <laughs> is. She got a nice gig yeah. developing that relationship with Tim Burton. And she, she definitely had fun with the different costumes and whatnot. Uh, she said for the Miss Peregrine's look that she said she looked at pictures of a particular bird, the, the peregrine falcon bird, which almost had a shoulder in its own way that was pointed and elongated and an Edwardian shape. And so she took that as an influence and she made uh, like pointed shoulders and a long tail feather, so like a really long skirt, mm-hmm. pretty much. That was pretty, pretty cool. And uh, so you can see the photo, uh, the concept art of Miss Peregrine. And then we had little Claire, but the the blonde Goldilocks oh, pretty yeah. much. Um, she she said Colleen Atwood said that the actresses her eyes are slightly further apart than most people. Uh-huh. So Tim Burton wanted her to look like a, a saccharine doll. Oh, interesting. I'm setting up the book in case. Oh, there you go. As a nice centerpiece for those who are watching us. We do yes, we do have the Miss Peregrine. We also have one person in the live chat. Let me see. We've got Thomas Dew. Hi, Thomas. If you have any questions, Hi, feel Thomas. free to send them our way. There we go. And um, for Miller Nullings, he's the invisible kid. Yeah. They're like, how do you visualize someone who's invisible? This was so fun, I thought. And they did such a good job. They were smart. Yeah, including him. And it's funny because the only asset you have, and the thing, and this is the costume, obviously, which was great, but mm-hmm. also the voice of the character. And I thought they voiced him very well. I think so, too. He'll like... Just listening to his voice, I can picture like the small, probably skinny kid mm-hmm. you know, who's kind of like meek but fun. Yeah. Um, and they said for him that they, it's like, okay, how do you distinguish where he's located? So you put a hat on him. So you're like, okay, this is where his head is. Yeah. And when they were actually filming, they had to like pretty much put him on a wire stand just so like, people wouldn't like run into his area while filming. Oh, or, like, that makes run sense. Run into the character. Like his head. Yeah. His head, the the whole eye line, um, I thought was cool. Um, Emma, Emma and her boots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what you, like what do you call them? The the iron or was it iron? I think iron lead. Yeah, lead boots. That's it. Lead boots. Um, Colleen Atwood said she had this idea to use 1920s ski boots, mm. and uh, she took the hardware of that and like plop took them off, and then like painted them in different colors and gave it that iron look. And um, and uh, she thought the pra- practicality of these boots that Emma would need, that, like, she could put them on but, like, quickly get out of them mm-hmm. in certain, certain, certain situations so you can, like, th- therein lies the clips on the boots, which I thought was cool. I thought it worked beautifully, yeah. Yeah. And um, and so, and in contrast to that, her dress was also, like, light and feathery so she can just float uh-huh. at the same time. Um, Olive, with her fire abilities... Mm-hmm. Um, she said uh, they used different latex that had a different shine on it, um, so it could look like she's holding fire. Yeah. I, I think it's really cool if you guys want to like keep checking that out, the cool photos there for you. Um, let's talk about Tim Burton, though. I mean, 
he's a genius of himself. But what did you think of Tim and his direction of this film? I thought it was pretty perfect. Um, my objections to the movie have more to do with story in the third act. But up until then, I thought sometimes Tim Burton can, I think, insert himself into a movie a little too much, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Where, like, the director's hand is so heavy that it can kind of take away. Whereas here, I thought it was just perfect. I thought there was an element of subtlety that we don't always see in Tim Burton movies, but still his just brilliant quirks. And um, I was very, very happy with the direction. He does a great job with kids. I think Tim Burton does. does a really good job with children. And yeah, I was moved by all of the performances in this movie, including the kids. So you did it, Tim. Nice yeah. job. Good job, Tim. Yeah. And he said how he got involved was obviously he, he liked the book and then, but he said it was other different elements too, working with Eva again, and just the whole theme of uh, being a, a loner and like fe- feeling like you don't fit into society, but you actually do. Um, he said that was very relatable and he just um, identified that with a lot. Well, Big Fish is my favorite movie of all time. So obviously I like Tim Burton. Um, Some of my, I love Ed Wood. I love Mars Attacks. Um, But he's made so many movies that they're not all going to be home runs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think this is, this maybe for me would be in my top 10 Tim Burton movies, which considering he's made so many movies is good. Yeah, I would say so too. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, there were some moments where I definitely felt it was a Tim Burton movie, and I don't know why, because the whole scene where we see Enoch like revive the toys for the first oh, time, yeah. it was obviously stop motion, right? And it just felt so different from the rest. It was a of little weird. Film. I actually could have done without that. Yeah, me too. I mean, I understand it, like what Enoch's ability was, but I don't think it was necessary, right? And it felt like it was just something to have in there just for fun. Tim Burton, he liked it himself because obviously he's well known with the stop motion, um, you know, world. But he said he actually wished there was more stop motion, but it just takes so much time. I'm glad so there wasn't. I'm glad there wasn't. Because if you think about it, when Enoch was playing with the toys for the first time, it was all stop motion. But then when it came to that epic battle at the end and he revived all the skeletons that were obviously animated, but right. it was the same ability. I'm like, I don't know why they look so different when it's the same thing. I know. Even in general, if you immerse stop motion in a live action movie, it's just going to have a look that kind of takes you out of it. So I didn't, that was the only choice I think he made that I could have done without. But yeah, I, for the most part, I think he did a really, really wonderful job. Yeah. I, you know, and I understood the, the movie itself not really knowing the story yet mm-hmm. and then but like i th- i think the adaptation the first half was definitely true to the book mm. and then the second half he definitely took those creative licenses in a fun way though in mm. a fun way <laughs> agree <laughs> like, to disagree okay fair enough um the music actually not by danny elfman you would think it would be but it's not he it's- just scored girl on the train actually danny elfman yeah oh good for him and allison janney's in that as well which is funny it's a very uh you see, small yeah. world. Yeah. Um, but we actually had Matthew Margeson who scored this one. This is the third Tim Burton film not scored by Danny. And he Elfman was unable to score this film due to scheduling conflicts with Alice Through the Looking Glass oh. that came out earlier in the year. But obviously, um, those two have a really good working relationship. And But, you know, Mar- Matthew's worked on other um, music for... Tim Burton as well. And he was a musical director on a lot of Burton's films, which is cool. So the, yeah, the soundtrack will be released later in October of this year. I thought it was good. I thought it was a good score. It wasn't too much. It wasn't overpowering, but it did compliment the movie. I thought yeah. it was good. I, I noticed it at the end when they're all going away mm-hmm. on the, the ship ferry there. Um, and no words were needed. Um, yeah, let's talk about a little bit about the box office of this. I mean, it had the um, budget of 110 million. So far, as of October 5th, it's garnered like 34 million domestically, and worldwide, it's about like 79 to 80 million, which that's pretty good. And it ranked number one. That's good. In the theaters. How much did this movie cost? 110 million. They've got some work to do. But. So, like, they still have a little ways to come back, but also with, you know, DVDs. I think the great thing about Tim Burton and all of his films, they're definitely rewatchable. Yeah, you're right. And I think this film is definitely rewatchable. 
Yeah, the thing is, when you have a director as bold as Tim Burton, he makes special movies that are worth going back to watch again. So, mm-hmm. you know, he the cult of Tim Burton fans regard almost all of his movies as classics. So I do think that this movie will have a life beyond just its screen run. Yeah. It's theatrical run. And it has more stories to tell, obviously, too. But the reception of this movie is pretty high. IMDb gives it 7.2. Cinema score is a B plus, which is a little low um, for the audience. But Rotten Tomatoes gives it 64 and 67 audience. Yeah, it's funny. I was trying to think, if I had seen this movie without having read the book, I wonder if I would have liked it. Because even having read the book, I found myself a little confused at parts... And there was just, like, a lot of stuff happening in this movie. It was. Um, but I had read the book, so I was fine with it because I could follow. But I'm not surprised that critic reactions to this movie have been a little lackluster because I do think there was a lot happening in this movie. That if you hadn't, if you had no context for it, you might have been a bit like, wait, what? Like, you know? Mm-hmm. Um there was a lot, but I understood just about... Yeah, you went in without having part. read the book. Yeah, without reading, having read the whole book at that point. Yeah. But, I mean, I understood the movie, and but I think one of the... I don't want to say glaring issues, but one of the things that worked against this film, it was a long film. It was long. And I think the pacing Sorry. was off. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I, there were some moments you can obviously pick it up faster or cut it just a little bit shorter because we see Jake, he keeps going back from the home to his, his hotel room, back and forth, back and forth. And I'm like, he keeps traveling back and forth, but nothing's really happening yet. Yeah. And it works in the book because they kind of developed his dad a little bit, but I, Chris O'Dowd did a good job with this kind of neglectful drunk father. Yeah. They could have pushed it a little more, though, I think. Pushed his alcoholic... Like, I kind of felt like in the book, I read him as, like, a straight alcoholic. And oh, did you? Okay. I did, yeah. And I feel like in the movie, he was, like, drinking and napping, but... Yeah, well, like, also in the book, they explained the father. Like, he was a motivated person who really wanted to go on this trip as well to work on his book, his right. bird book. And then when he found that the other guy was working on the bird bird book he was like oh well you know he kind of lost his faith and hope and then he just kind of got drunk because he felt bad right he couldn't complete his work so therefore all the drinking happened because he just kind of gave up on himself but there was a line in the book that i actually really enjoyed that kind of really hit the nail on the head miss peregrine's talking to jake and trying to like convince him to stay at the home Mm -hmm. and like leave his family and his current life and um, Miss Peregrine tells Jake, it's like, you know, your family may love you, but they'll never understand you. Yeah. And I was like, and that was kind of like a key defining moment of why Jake wants to stay with the Peculiars. That was very well written in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Um, overall, I did enjoy this film. Me too, for Would sure. Would you buy this film? Maybe. I liked Tim Maybe. Burton a lot. And as I just mentioned, Big Fish is actually my favorite movie ever. I watched that movie. Really? Yeah, it really is. Okay. Um, I th- yeah, Tim Burton movies work best, I think, when there is a very kind of sensitive emotional core. Um, like, he really cares about, like, the underdog. And, like, his movies at first seem like they're just these stylistic, quirky explorations of outsiders, but they end up having something really sweet. Um, Willy Wonka. Willy, exactly. Willy Wonka is a great Edward example. Edward Yeah, for sure. And they're not all, I mean, Mars Attacks is just off the wall nuts, but, um, but yeah, like I, I think this movie is one I would watch again. I think, yeah. Yeah. I I think I'd buy it. I probably would buy this film. Yeah. Um, I, overall, I did enjoy this and I'm glad that we got this story out. Do you think this film was enough to garner another two films? Oh, I think we're gonna have to see what the box office does. The interesting thing is, I actually think Hollow City will be better as a movie than okay. this was. I honestly thought That's Hollow. That's the second one. This is the next one. Yeah, I thought Hollow City as a book wasn't quite as good as the first one, okay. um, but it was very even more extreme in terms of the visuals and the things. It's even more fantasy. So I kind of wonder if we're gonna see even a better movie with Hollow City. Because the text is lending itself, I think, already well to something on the screen. Yeah. And, like, I liked all the children for their own peculiarities that they have. And I kind of want to just see them grow up and see what they're going to do with it. And yeah. maybe their powers get stronger. And, uh, like, see how they just grow into that. 
Yeah, it's fun. They use their powers more in the in the upcoming books, but they still have the same kind of innocence of children. Like it's hmm. like you, you see a lot more of Hugh in Hollow City, actually. Okay, yeah, because we hardly saw him in this film. But which was the funny thing about his uh, the actor who plays Hugh? He was also in uh, Mr. Holmes. He played oh, yeah. the child who was attacked so by bees, oh. <laughs> which is ironic because his character controls them. controls bees. So yeah, I I really enjoyed this film though. It was fun. Me too. I definitely I think they did. I enjoyed the book. Yeah, it was the movie was good enough for me to read the rest of the book. Good. Yeah, so. for for as bad as this movie could have been, they did a pretty good job. So I'm happy as a fan of the book. I'm. I think they did a good enough job with the movie. Good job, cool. guys. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in and listening for our dissection of Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. In the meantime, where can everyone keep following you? You guys can follow me, Jeff Graham, on Twitter at Jeffrey C. Graham. You can also catch me over on AfterBuzz TV covering Atlanta with Donald Glover and The Good Place with Kristen Bell. There you go. And you can follow me on Twitter at Serafini TV. You can follow all of us on twitter at the popcorn talk and we're we're going to be talking about more movies we're going to be talking about the girl on the train i think i'll be back for that one a lot of films and down the pipeline that should be exciting to talk about thank you everyone thank you everyone for tuning in and we will see you for our next dissection From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the rest of the Anatomy of a Movie staff, we would like to thank you for listening and subscribing to the show. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to email or tweet us. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been Anatomy of a Movie. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Popcorn Talk Network or its owners or principals.